you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to Exodus chapter 32. Um, and while you're turning there, I'd just like to thank Pastor Jason for allowing me to borrow his pulpit this Sunday. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Ryan Rust, and uh, I served uh, on staff here for the past three years, and then y'all sent me to Louisville, Kentucky, me, my wife, and kids, so that I can finish my seminary education. And it's been a joy for us to be back here, um, and I know I speak for Andrea and Ezra and Eleanor that, that we, we love this place. Um, and, and not really this place, but we love you guys. And so um, it's a privilege and an honor to open up God's Word for you all this morning. So our text today is going to be Exodus 32, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 14. But for context, I'll start in verse 1. The Word of God says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who you brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray.
Father, as we open up your word to, to receive your teaching, I pray that you would bring all of our lives under submission to you and your word, and that your word would rule our lives as we, as we proclaim that you are the king, that we would, that we would submit our lives to, to, to honor you. I pray for me that that you would kill any sense of pride. I have any sort of sense of trust in my own understanding and, and fully lean on you and who you are. Pray that you would edify your children in here through my preaching. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So in my short time in ministry, three years, one of the... the most consistent concerns I hear Christians have is that there seems to be something lacking in their prayer life. Many times we're, I think we're faithful to pray. I think we incorporate the discipline into our life like we do it when we wake up, uh, uh, when, we, when we go to sleep, even before meals. But something, I think if we're honest, something seems to be off. And I know I can relate to this. There, there doesn't seem to be any, any power when we're praying. And if we're honest, the great prayers in Scripture and the great stories of God acting on behalf of His people from prayer just does not characterize our lives. And there's probably a multitude of reasons for this, but as we begin a new year, and even a new decade, this week, I want to look back at this famous story in Exodus 32 to see what we can gain in our lives by looking at this powerful, powerful, history-changing prayer from Moses. So maybe then our prayers can be marked by that type of power, that type of eternal power. But before we dive into the text, I want to provide a little context since we're kind of just jumping into this book of what's going on during the scene in the Exodus story. So at this point, it's a very famous story, right? God had already delivered the Israelites from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. And he sent, remember, the ten plagues to demonstrate his power, his, his, his rule over the Pharaoh. And then remember, God, God ultimately delivers the Israelites to the famous account at the Red Sea where God destroys the armies of Egypt and he delivers his, his people. And after this well-known, this climactic story right, in Exodus 14, the pace of the narrative completely slows down. And we see in chapter 19 a a massively important text for us this morning in our text where the Lord makes a covenant, right? He makes a promise to Moses that the Israelites will be his treasured possession among all the peoples on the earth. And then the Lord gives them this wonderful, wonderful gift that we all love or we should love, right? His law, the, the, the the Ten Commandments. And for the next 12 or so chapters in Exodus, Moses would go up to Mount Sinai to spend time with God. He'd receive the law and instructions of the law, and it seemed like all these obscure things about uh, instructions on priests, instructions on on building a tabernacle. And so Moses would receive all of this information, and then he would go down and deliver it to the people. And he was like their, their intercessor, their conduit to God. And then... 
Everything changes in chapter 32. A massive conflict enters the story. And we read in verse 1 that the people, that's the Israelites, saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain. And and essentially the people just freak out. Remember, Moses was their their direct access to God, their, their conduit to God. And he has been gone spending time with God. So the people get uneasy. They begin to freak out. And they more than likely, given the language, they coerce Aaron, who's the priest at this time, into making them an idol, a a golden image of a calf. And Aaron isn't without big blame here because he, he ultimately gathers up the gold and he grants the wicked wishes of the people. And he caves in, he makes them an image of a golden calf to go before them as their God. And I just want to say, I've heard this story many times in my time as a Christian, and I've always found it really strange, just odd. I just, it does not relate to me in the 21st century, because I don't know if you're like me, but, but I do not struggle to worship little golden bulls. Like, that is not one of my sin struggles. But I think there's something deeper going on with the Israelites, And for the longest time, I thought this story was saying that the Israelites were trying to replace God by by worshiping the little golden calf instead of the Lord. But what I think is happening fundamentally is that, that the Israelites are trying to worship Yahweh, right, their Lord, through the image. And I think that's an important distinction to make for us because I think this story hits a lot closer to home. They're not trying to throw away God. Notice what Aaron does when the people receive the golden calf. We see in verse 5 that Aaron builds an altar before it, declares that they're going to have a feast, right? And then the next day, the text says they they rose up early, they offered burnt and, and peace offerings to the golden calf. And what does this sound like to you? I mean, it sounds and it looks just like Old Testament worship of God. See, what is happening is not that the Israelites are trying to replace God with the golden calf, but they're representing God through the golden calf. And the choice of the golden calf, right, it makes total sense when you look at the nation they were just released from, Egypt. Egypt worshipped gods, their gods, and in similar ways by representing them through animals. And you see the Israelites, this is my point, is that the Israelites wanted to worship Yahweh. They wanted to worship their God, but they wanted to do it like the pagan nations, the pagan culture they were surrounded by. The source of their problem is that they are worshiping God in a way that God did not allow by incorporating elements from the the non-believing, the the pagan culture into their worship of God and listen to me. That has massive implications for us today because in the American church and really probably the global church is full of worship to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the one true God that is influenced by a pagan culture. In just one example, there's a massive local church in this country right now that is extremely popular with my generation, probably younger. And I think many churches are going to follow this, but they have introduced 
an online campus for, for their church. Like, this isn't a live stream. Like, live stream is, is not meant to just, you're, you only watch church online, right? It's just meant to, if you can't make church, like, this is a whole campus, like a whole church that you do online. And so an individual can become a member of a church that can engage in worship while never physically being there. And this is a direct contradiction, I think, a direct contradiction of of God's word in Hebrews 10.25, which states we cannot forsake the physical gathering of the saints in church. And yet to this church, which is probably not wicked in their intent, they're probably seeking to, to worship Yahweh and to allow all people to worship God Right, but they desire to appease the, 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 the non-believing cultural demands of individuals. I don't even know what else. That a person might not want to be burdened by showing up to a physical church and engaging with physical saints so they can just, so they can just do church from their living room f- forever. They don't have to serve. They don't have to be a part of a physical body. You see, they want to worship the Lord. They want to worship God. They don't want to replace God, but in a way that he doesn't allow because the church can't forsake gathering together. And none of us are exempt from the temptation to worship God like our surrounding culture. It's prevalent in all of us. The same temptation the Israelites faced in Exodus 32 is what we face today, and the implications are huge because God himself cares so deeply about how he is worshipped. And for us, it, it matters how we, how we do church. It matters what we do in church. It matters what elements of the culture we incorporate into our worship. And it matters, don't miss this, it matters because it matters to God. Because as we see in the rest of the story, God's wrath, his anger, it burns hot against the Israelites because they're attempting to worship him in a way he doesn't allow, right? They're breaking the second commandment. And so, to our text today, we read in verse 7 that God tells Moses to go down from the mountain because your people, whom, whom you brought out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. God is, God is distancing himself from the people he made covenant with by saying, these are now your people, Moses. God says, let me be alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And we're going to get back to that. But, but God is, is threatening to wipe out, to destroy the Israelites completely because of their idolatrous episode with the calf. And this is important. I want you to get this. This is not a false threat. The whole covenant that happened in Exodus 19 and even the covenant God made uh, with Abraham in Genesis 12, the promises to the Israelites that they will be God's people, they are seriously under threat because of their sin with the calf. You have to understand, this was an extremely, extremely real threat. God is not making a false threat here. But then in steps the hero of the story, Moses, to to plead for, to advocate for his people. And it's our first point, I think, about 
prayer in our lives. It's that God desires for his children to plead for, to to desperately ask, to beg even for people and for events in our prayers. And I submit to you what is happening with God and Moses in verse 10 is not a command that Moses leave God alone, but a challenge for Moses, a test for Moses. And I think the text plays this out because God, spoiler alert, God does not wipe out the Israelites. Um, But God does not punish Moses for not leaving him alone. And that's a really big clue that what Moses did was right. It was the, the, the godly thing for him to do here. Moses hears this challenge, and really, if you look at it closely, it's an opportunity for himself. God says, I'll start over with just you, with just you, Moses, and make a great nation of you. And I think that temptation would be real for any of us, right? And yet, notice in verse 11, the text states, Moses implores the Lord to relent from his wrath against his people. I want you to see this is an extremely honorable, brave, and a bold thing to do. Moses is, is, is fleeing from self-glorification, from self-glory, right? And he's pleading with, he's imploring. Think about this, the creator of the universe to spare his people. Now that is bold, He's contending with the person that, with the, with the thing that made him, right, to reconsider his threat. And here's what I want us to see, is we need to model what Moses did in our own prayer life. We need to be a people with the boldness to approach God in our prayers, with, with an urgent cry for God to change an event, or to change a person's heart, or to change a circumstance that, that's not pleasing to him. And listen, I struggle here because much of my prayer life has been marked more by passivity rather than an earnest pleading like we see Moses doing in these verses. And so I'm convicted. And I want to contrast the response of Moses to another Old Testament character, Eli, in the book of 1 Samuel. So Eli is a priest um, who kind of trains Samuel He's not in an identical situation as Moses, but he has two sons, Phineas and can't remember the other one, but they're, they're in terrible sin. Uh, they're, they're exploiting the people of Israel. They're, they're corrupt. And Eli was a priest, right? He had access to Yahweh. He had access to God. And, and God casted a judgment down that he was going to kill, that he was going to kill Eli's two sons because of, because of their sin. And this is Eli's response in 1 Samuel 3.18. He says, he is Yahweh. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And I want to be clear that the Bible does not condemn blatantly Eli for this response. But I want us to see that God does not bless Eli in the ways that he does Moses for Moses' prayer. I believe... With everything in me, I believe Eli should have pleaded with the Lord to spare his son's life. But he doesn't. And honestly, if you were to ask me three months ago, maybe even one month ago, 
who had the better response between Eli and Moses? I probably would have said Eli. Because on the surface, it looks like he's trusting in God's sovereignty, like he's trusting in the full control of God and saying, let God's will be done. And listen to me, that, that's, a, that's a good prayer. We should pray prayers like that, to trust in God's control over a situation. But just think, here in Exodus 32, when Moses is interceding, he's, he's pleading for, on behalf of the Israelites, that response wouldn't have cut it. It just wouldn't do. If Moses were to just say, well, God, do what is good in your eyes, then the whole covenant, the whole promise would have been over. And yet God provided Moses with an opportunity to respond in faith by pleading with him to relent from his wrath. And to contrast to Eli, Moses responded in bold faith. Right? And he pleaded with God to change his plan. And this is sort of a, a mystery. I know if, if you're smart, which all of you are, you're, there's, there's a mystery here of how all this works together, how a sovereign God who's in complete control of all human history could threaten his own predetermined plan and promises. And we don't have time to get into what's happening here. Be, be here all year. But I'll just say, I don't think, and not many scholars think, that because of Moses' prayer, God is changing his mind in the way that you and I would change our mind. Right? God is king of the universe. He's in complete control. He does not change on a whim like you or I. But the point here is, and this is true, that, that because of Moses' bold pleading on behalf of his people, God spared them. God showed them mercy because of Moses' prayer. And that needs to be the mark of our prayer life. And so I'll just ask you, what about your prayer life? Is it marked by an earnest boldness and pleading for the loss that you know? Or is it, is it masked by a pious passivity that, that, that never seeks to implore the Lord for anything? Is your prayer life marked by desperate pleas for the Lord, for him to enact his, his just will and his mercy amidst all the injustice that litters our sin-filled world? Or is it marked by something else? Because I'm convinced one of the main reasons my prayer life lacks any sort of power is because I'm not being bold enough in my pleading with the Lord. Instead, I'm content to be passive, to be like Eli. And say, well, he's God. Let him, he'll do what he wants. And the worst part is I thought this passivity was, was honoring to God. I truly did. And it may have been sometimes. But here's the truth of this text. God honored, God answered Moses' prayer. Like he actually, he honors Moses' plea. God ultimately relented from the disaster he was going to bring upon his people because of Moses' prayer. Which leads to our second point about prayer. It's that God honors, we can say God answers prayer that is saturated in, that is, that is steeped in, that is characterized by his character and his promises. And so I just want us to quickly examine what 
makes up, what characterizes Moses' prayer that led to God from, from relenting from his wrath. To see what, what we could now incorporate in 2020 and in the next decade into our prayer lives to give power to our prayers, to give actual power to our prayers. And so we see this in verses 11 through 13. It says, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit forever. That does not sound like my morning prayer, but I want us to notice in verse 11 that we, we can model this type of prayer. Moses is proclaiming to the Lord in verse 11 that his wrath is burning hot against his people. Moses is declaring to God that the Israelites are his people. They're his chosen covenant people. Moses is is doing, is, is essentially saying, remember your people. Just remember your people. They are your possession who you just delivered from Egypt. You, Yahweh, you chose this people. From all the nations of the world, you delivered this people. Remember, this is your people, and relent from your wrath, and don't destroy them. And notice in verse 12, Moses does something interesting. By, by he, he appeals to God's name among the nations. And this is a major theme in, in the Psalms, if you read them, or, or across the whole Old Testament. But, but he incorporates... Right, he states what the Egyptians would think if God just delivered them from captivity, which he just did, just to then kill them. And I think at the root of this claim from Moses, he's appealing to God's glory, to God's fame among the pagan nations. Moses understands that God is a jealous God. And, and when I say that, I'm not saying God is jealous for us and, and for, or for me, which, which he is in a certain sense. But God is jealous in the sense that he desires his name to be praised among all people on earth. And Moses understand. He understands that God cares deeply about his name. And he appeals to that in his prayer. And finally, in verse 13, Moses appeals to the promises God has made. He says, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob or Israel, who you swore that you would multiply their offspring. Moses is saying, remember your covenant, God. Remember your promise in Genesis 12. Remember your promises to us. And so what characterizes Moses' prayer is that it's steeped in. It's full of who God is and, and what God has promised. He's appealing to God using what he knows about God's character, what he knows God cares about, and what he knows God has promised. 
And I fully believe it is an inspiring, it's, it's a worthy model for us today. So when you go home later, maybe later this week, you can do it right now. I want you to ask this question. Does my prayer life consist more of an appeal to God's name, to God's character, to God's promises? Or is my prayer life more about me, my requests, my pain, my problems, my sorrow? Because it's not that God doesn't want to hear our prayers about ourselves. He does. He cares deeply. But the lesson we can gain from Moses is that to have a prayer of power, a prayer that God is pleased to answer, it needs to be first about God and his character and his promises. I think one question you could have while reading this story is, how in the world did Moses do this? How did he get so bold to confront the God of the universe? How did he even know what to say in that situation? And I think the answer is, look where he just came from. Look in the story. Where did he just come from? The last 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, Moses has been consistently spending time in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of God himself on Mount Sinai. You see, I'm convinced Moses was so bold here in his prayer, and his prayer was so God-centered, because he had just spent such prolonged quality time in the presence of God, and that is the exact same truth for us. Our prayers will increase in boldness. They're going to increase in power when we understand who we're praying to. And the only way to understand him is to dive into his word, become saturated with his word. And listen, I fully believe this. Our most powerful prayers occur with our Bibles open. Because it's then that we understand what God's desires are. It's then we understand how God likes to be addressed. It's then when we, we become so saturated with the Psalms that, that we begin to pattern our, our every prayer after them. So that more than anything, that truth will give our prayer true power, true power. And I think a lot of people want to know, I want to know how to pray for God's will. And the only surefire way I know how to is pray through the scriptures, because that's where God has spoken. Because when you're, when you're saturated in the word of God, his desires will become your desires. His ways will become your ways. His promises will become your only hope in this life. And then you will begin to plead like Moses on the mountaintop with power. You will begin to be desperate in your pleas to God. So I plead with you to pray through the word of God. And finally, I'm almost done here, but this is so important. God, God could have listened to Moses' plea. He could have listened to this whole prayer Moses gave. And he could have wiped out the Israelites. And he could have started over with Moses. And he would have been completely just in doing that. He would have been completely right in doing that. And I think we need to acknowledge there's, there's no right formula in prayer. He's not a genie, right? That if you say the right things, even from Scripture, that he's then going to answer your prayer. That's not how it works. 
God can do what he pleases because he's God, the ruler of the universe. But God showed the Israelites mercy. The Israelites messed up so bad with the worship with the golden calf. And listen, we, every single one of us, we mess up really bad when we sin. You see, just like the Israelites, every single one of us in this room, we would face the wrath of God and we would be eternally destroyed because of our works, because of what we do, because of our sin, because of the sin in our life. God would be right and good and just to let his wrath burn hot against us. And yet, we have a greater intercessor than Moses on Sinai because Jesus Christ is our greater and better Moses. He is our great intercessor. Just as the Israelites needed one to plead for them, they needed someone to to advocate for them, to, to implore for them because of their sin, we need it even more. And this is one of the great hopes of the gospel. As Paul says it in Romans 8, 33 through 34, he writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. And listen to this. Who indeed is interceding for us right now. So if you're sitting here and you trust in Christ alone for eternal life, then you need to know that right now, as I'm talking with you, Jesus is pleading for you before the Father. And that is glorious news. Because that means when when we pray in Jesus' name, which is why we pray in Jesus' name, by the way, that that when we have our faith in him alone, our prayers are being hand-delivered directly to the Father by the Son. And I want that picture impressed on your mind the next time you pray. And you tell me that that prayer won't have power being delivered by Christ. Because Jesus Christ, is on our side. Jesus Christ is the one delivering it to his Father, our God. And if you're here and you do not know Jesus, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I know that you have sat alone in your bed at night, and and you've wondered, you maybe even cried out to whatever you think God may be, and you utter a prayer out, you utter out a cry and, and you just wonder, am I just talking to a wall? I mean, I've been there. I've been there so many times. And listen to me. If you trust Jesus Christ right now, if you believe that he is God and that he did raise from the dead, then I guarantee you it is not just a wall that you're talking to. Because of Christ's death on the cross. He has sealed the work. He is delivering those prayers to his Father. You can have, even today, even in this moment, you can have the ear of your Creator because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So trust in that Christ today. And for those of you in Christ, we have to pray with more boldness than even Moses in this story. Because we know that Christ is pleading. 
He is interceding to the Father on our behalf. And that ought to give our prayer life more power than anything because when we are praying in the will of God, when, when His desires become our desires, when, when His name, His glory becomes what we most desire, then it pleases the Father to answer our prayers. It pleases God to answer us. And so Christian, remember this in the coming year. Remember this in, in the next 10 years of this decade, that when you pray and you begin to grow to grow more like Christ in your life, and you begin to pray more like Christ, remember that God hears you. And not only does he hear you, but he delights to answer you. Your prayers have eternal power, eternal power, because the eternal one, Jesus Christ, is our great intercessor. And like Moses before him, he will plead to his father on behalf of his people. And that is where our true power and prayer comes from. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for your word, that it's true, that it's living, that it's active. And in this moment, I pray that you would pierce our souls with it. That if there's any in this room that don't know you, Father, I pray that you would right now convict them of sin and that you would you would. Help them trust in you alone for their salvation. And I pray for, for, for those that are your children, those that are in Christ, Lord. I pray that you would mark our lives by boldness and prayer. And that our prayers would be powerful. Powerful enough to change our communities. Powerful enough to change this, this town. Powerful enough to change this nation. Father, do that in us. Help us seek you in our prayers first. Help us glorify your name in our prayers. Give us power. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Man, thank you, brother. <clears throat> Man, what a, what a great picture, right? Especially that, that last part. We hear about how Moses bravely stands before a holy and just God. And you're going, man, I, I wish I could be like Moses. And then you remember at the end, what? Well, I, I don't necessarily have to be because Jesus does that for me, right? Um, Jesus is a better intercessor. And anytime we find ourselves at home having one of those moments that we feel like God couldn't love us because we're too dirty. We feel like we're just not good enough that we've messed up for the 454th time. It's too much. It's 490, right? 490th time. It's 491, God. It's too much. And we remember we have Christ Jesus himself in front of the Father pleading on our behalf. Amen. Amen.